This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our guest has made up a lot of uh, actors of yesterday and today, Bette Davis, Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro, uh, many, many others which we'll talk about, and of course, the Star Trek crew. He's been nominated 42 times, won nine Emmy Awards. Yeah, uh, and right now he can be seen on the sci-fi show along his daughter Mackenzie, which is uh, also part of the Westmore legacy. Uh, next year is the 100th anniversary where Westmore has been in makeup division since 1917 in a major studio. So we have a lot of great stories to talk about tonight, but please welcome Oscar-winning makeup artist Michael Westmore. <laughs> Uh, we'll just start with the obvious question. Uh, so what was it like watching Star Trek First Contact at your alma mater with students and Trekkies alike? Well, I love coming back to Santa Barbara on, on the movie. Uh, in the beginning there, when you saw that rocket ship, that is a museum in Arizona. I think it's still there. It's the last missile silo left in the United States. Um, the people that ran it when we were there were the, there was four people. There was two officers and two enlisted men that had keys that made that thing work. And as I said, right now, where, when we were there, it was a museum. But these little holes are were all over the United States during the Cold War. And, I, and, and just talking to the people, we'd say, well, what, what do you do with these? Well, when, if China fired off a missile... We had 30 minutes to fire back. And that's what this thing in Arizona was for, was to go the other direction. Yeah. Scary. And we talked about, it must have been amazing for the actors, because again, normally today you're in front of the blue screen, green screen. Actually being in there must have been amazing. That was for real. That yeah. was no screen. Yeah, and was, it must real. make the actor's job so much easier. Yeah. I know you had the scene where he touches the missile, yeah. Patrick Stewart, but it's just, that is something I think is a little lost art Yeah, with uh, digital effects. This type of makeup, now, uh, so much of it has gone to visual effects. And th- at that time, I had the opportunity to practically do it. I, used to, I still have this little kit that's a, a small makeup box, and it's filled with fishing line and hypodermic needles and uh, waxes and blood and little capsules. And it was like my special effects makeup box. And that went everywhere with me because everything was practical. A director would say, I want to do this. And you had to be able to pull it out of your box and you do it. Now you don't worry about it because you let the visual effects people take care of it and post now uh, so much of it. But it must be easier for the actors in some ways to have the makeup, to see themselves in the mirror instead of doing visual effects. Well, it, it, it does. Um, where most of the time the actors, when you, you get them all made up, they would feel that the makeup might fall off. And so the first thing I would do, and, I, and in fact, I do this on face-off, too, when I'm talking uh, to the contestants, uh, you know, before they do the makeups, is to go ahead, once you're made up, is to talk, look in a mirror, move your face around, go ahead and touch it. You realize it isn't going to fall off. And uh, an actor wearing it for the first time is always afraid to move. Yeah, so speaking of that, so we have the opening shot of Picard's Nightmare, which set a really darker tone compared to all the other movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sets up the, the, really the, the more of the zombie-like Borg. 
So how much of was the decision where, you know, in this TV series you had to have, you had limited budget and now you were able to go further with the Borg or how much was the story decision? The only thing that I was told was we're going to make them bald and we're going to do implants on them. So it was up to me to figure out what we were going to do. I had a lot of free reign on the show. Uh, writers didn't write descriptions in the scripts or anything. And then I would either do sketches or literally put it into clay, take it to the producers and say, this is what I'm going to do, and, and we, we would go for it. Um, interesting, on, on like one of these Borg pieces, that uh, Jake Garber sculpted a lot of it and Barry Coper did a lot of the eyes. Um, Jake actually sculpted in the side here in Borg language, Westmore's Barbecue, <laughs> uh, which um, I didn't find this out until after we had filmed everything. And uh, my son Michael, who's here tonight, Michael did all the electronics on it. When you saw David blinking, and of course that arm is over there and that head is over in the museum. And uh, you got to see it actually flashing and, and working. And Michael was responsible for putting all the electronics into everything when we were doing it. And with the eyepieces, which I found out later was, is that he was programming Morse code into the eyepieces with names of his dog and uh, crew members and people, you know. And then Jackie, uh, his girlfriend, is here, and Jackie is the one that built the Borg suit that's over there. That Borg suit, uh, which is really a beautiful piece of costuming, um, we, we uh, featured that at the last big Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. And Jackie actually got to play the Borg. She let, let uh, Cato put her makeup on, and Michael made all those new electronics. In fact, if we were doing it over again, what he has on the suit over there is probably what we would go to now within the, you know, the next generation of Borgs. Uh, how fun was it you when you first saw that first Borg turn on, on the screen? You first saw the new Borgified, the less clean Borg. When they were part human? Yeah. Uh, that was, and that was always kind of like a challenge to say, how far are we going to go? And that's something I'd have to ask the, the director, you know, how far do you want me to go with this? Do you know, a quarter of a face or a half a face or how much? And we would just go from there and put on a, whatever chunk we kind of needed, uh, like Locutus in the, his very beginning when they started, uh, Patrick Stewart started to Borgify him. And I loved, uh, actually, my favorite was Lieutenant Hawk. Because mm-hmm. he was really the character we got to like the most that was turned. Yeah. But that facial expression went through the spacesuit. You saw him when he tacked Picard. Now, the only thing is, you see him on a lot of shows now. And every <laughs> time his face comes up, that's what I think of. I think of him as a bore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But obviously, the funnest Borg had to be the Borg Queen. Yes. You have a human head attached to a cyborg body with clamps. You got a machine spine that kind of looks just like this really creepy cat's tail with lights. Uh, so how did you develop that? How, what was the process working with Will Riker, the director? Sorry, he's Jonathan Frakes, but I call him number one Will Riker. Yeah. Uh, how was that? How did you guys work together for the Borg Queen? Um, uh, me- mechanical outfits making all the, the, the chrome parts to the Borg. Uh, our job was to take care of her from the chest down. So when she's floating down... She's also, uh, they actually, she actually did it herself, and then that's through visual effects that was taken out of it. Uh, the rest of her body was you know, wiped away. Um, just to have seen her for the first time when they put her together in her suit with, uh, with Alice's presence that she performed with, 
It was, uh, it was amazing, and it was spooky. And it's like we kind of knew from the very beginning. You know, a lot of times you don't know what you're doing. Uh, one of the other films might be fun to screen sometime, be Rocky, because that was made for a million dollars. And uh, it was like I threw the script away afterwards. But the movie, I'm mm, done with that film. You know? um, and it's, uh, you never know what's going to happen. That was made at a time when Scorsese was making a lot of dark movies, and that hit the screen, and it just skyrocketed to fame. So, but first contact, we had that feel from the beginning that there was something there, because I, even with the B plot that was going here, when it would switch to Cochrane, it was like, that was interesting. So you, you never got bored. It would like keep taking you back and forth with this, give you a chance to breathe, but was still taking you somewhere. You could see where the story was going. Yeah, sometimes Star Trek, I thought was, uh, you know, I'm a Trekkie, but it, it wouldn't, they don't generally want to go that far sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in the movies. So this is the first time, because Patrick Stewart is in a really dark place this whole entire movie. Yeah. And that was really interesting. Um, but let's talk a little about Data. So you have the normal makeup for Data in this movie, but you're also giving some human skin. What was the process like working with Brett Spiner on this one and, of course, throughout 10 years on the show? Um, Brent's always, he's open for anything. It's like, let's go for it. And so it was a matter of like his arm, having to take a cast of his arm, and then literally making up three rubber sleeves, each one of those, which are in the exhibit, uh, three rubber sleeves that could slip over his arm, except on the final one, uh, with all the lights in it, Michael had it all attached to a battery pack, so we could turn it on, turn it off, and turn it into a Christmas tree. And his, yeah, and his, you know, his head there. It's uh, over the over the course of the show, though, even the, uh, the television show. I think we opened up Brent everywhere, we, even to the point of we opened his fingernail one time, you know, <laughs> or sides of his head and the sides of the neck and things. It's um, uh, it, it was ongoing, and it was a lot of fun to do. Even down to the one point where his head was sitting on a shelf all by itself. Again, they his body was really there. They just wiped it out. But, uh, you know, he was a talking head at once. Uh, We we got a chance to go to Comic-Con and got to talk to him for a moment. And he said, you know, uh, every day you were the most constant part of his day. 5.30s in the makeup chair. But you made it a very comfortable space for him, a relaxing space. Can you talk about how important it is for a makeup artist? Because the actor, the first person they see in the morning is you. And your, how you relate with the actor, because you could throw the actor off if they don't feel comfortable. How does that relationship work? Uh, it's, it's, it's a relationship of they really don't want to hear my problems. <laughs> they really don't. It's, it's like, uh, in fact, I heard an actor say that one time to the makeup artist who was going crazy and ranting and raving, is that I'm the actor. I have to go to work. You're here to help me. So shut up, you know, <laughs> and it's true. You have to, you have to be a sounding board to them. I uh, have to listen to them. Um, years ago, at Universal, I did a movie with Bobby Darren, uh, and I would meet him in the morning, and we would be together for about an hour. I would do his makeup, and he Bobby wore a hairpiece, so I had to glue his hairpiece down, and he would talk to me about Sandy and their boy. And I would talk about my kids, and he would talk to me about music and different synthesizers and things like that. I had, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> but he would talk to me about that, and then they would call him to go to the set, 
he would go to the set. I would not talk to him the rest of the day. He became Bobby Darren, the actor, composer. I saw him chew up agents and spit them out the door. <laughs> I mean, it was a, he, was, he was an entrepreneur. He was a businessman. And then we would rap. We'd go back to the trailer and I'd take his hairpiece off and clean up his face and everything like that. And we would chat for a few more minutes. But through the rest of the day, I was all, he knew I was there. Not that I was going to go up and bother and chat and, you know, what are you going to do Saturday night, you know, type thing. It wasn't because, you know, he's, he's the person I'm there to serve. And that's why I've always uh, approached it, that I never really made myself a personal friend of all the people. I, I became a good friend, a good working relationship. Uh, a little closer with Elizabeth Taylor because she grew up across the street from my uncle and she was a close friend of the family. So, But with Elizabeth, I'd go in and have lunch with her. And it was amazing. People like Sammy Davis Jr. and people like that would stop by the trailer to chat with her and she would send out for food. She'd send out to Chasen's for chili and things. So with her, but it was still a working relationship, but uh, a little bit closer than than I like, like to have it because when they say rap, I want to go home. <laughs> But uh, and then a little bit Worf, Mister Worf is actually one of, always my favorite character. For Klingon, actually, I thought he was the most human character. He had a he was a single dad struggling on the ship. Uh, what was like creating his mask? Because he had to do a lot of acting, you know, with that kind of intense mask. Well, Michael, Michael when they first hired him, they had made a deal with him that he would shave his head, and I would glue that strip across the front. And I said, he doesn't have to do that. I just make a rubber, whole rubber forehead for him. So once I got the rubber forehead built, it looked, and it was a little, a little more bony than the Klingons in the past. The original Klingons had nothing on their foreheads. Uh, in the movies, they had rubber foreheads, but they were kind of, they were designs I couldn't use. Some of them looked like sausage rolls or very, very subtle. So, I, in fact, I had a box of them, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I could, hopefully I could use these. But I couldn't. Uh, so Michael's was the first one I uh, sculpted and, and uh, designed. And then I, I went to, to Roddenberry and I said, you know, it looks a little uh, strange with this. All of a sudden, all this busyness here and from here down, he's a human. So they let me go ahead and make the nose and do a test with it. And an upper pair of teeth, which kind of gave him a little snarly teeth and a little dirtier than uh, the normal. And that became... I'm going to say the Bible for the Klingons from there on. Uh, so, all right. So one thing I've always been curious about, what is a day like for a makeup artist? Like, when does your day start? What is, like, what is the day, the working day? Well, for the average makeup artist, because you have an early morning call, uh, you go in, you make your people up, um, and you go to the set. When the set call comes, you pack up your makeup case, you go to the set, and you stay with them all day long. Now, something's going on now that I'm not thrilled with, and it started back in Star Trek, and that's why they put monitors up. And so they were basically having the teams stay away from the set and watch them. You can't see if somebody's sweating on a monitor. So every time I had to go to the set and stand by with somebody, and I would once in a while, you know, I was trained to stand right next to the camera and to see what the camera's seen instead of sitting 20 feet behind watching a monitor, thinking that you could watch somebody that way. So uh, that, you're supposed to be there to 
powder down and, and take his, a lot of times you'll notice things and you'll wonder why and it's because makeup artists are too far away to even get there in time you know, to do it. And then you stay with them all to go to lunch, come back and uh, do touch-ups and you have your, your day and clean them up and it's time to go home. Uh, that's kind of like an average day but on the shows like Star Trek it, there's much more application, there's much more early time to come in um, and, and the touch-ups after lunch are more involved and the cleanups are more involved and so many times with a lot of the heads you'll see in the exhibit we were able to use them over and over again several times that meant having to take them off with alcohol very carefully and because otherwise we use a chemical uh, Miristate and, but Miristate when it gets into the rubber it attacks it and, and blows it up so if you want to destroy something yeah you can get it off faster but it can't be reused because uh, like the Ferengi heads, I reused those things over and over again uh, because they were just, and, and with the, the reptile, the Zindi reptile that we have in the exhibit, it took a day to paint those. It took a day to make one and a day to paint one totally. So it's, it's a lot of intensive labor involved with it. So you just didn't want to destroy it. Now, the movie is slightly, slightly different. When you had the TV show, how much time, you read the script and they said, you know, new, a new race called the Ferengi. Right, you know, they, they, they make deals, which is really, as I think, what was written in the script. What? How much time do you have to come up with a mask? Like, how much time on the show did you have when you for, read an alien? For what? A for script. an alien? Yeah. Depends on what it is. If we had um, anywhere from one to three, I could be more aggressive with the size of what we were making. If it was going to be maybe half a dozen or so, which is going to wind up being foreheads or ears. Um, it, uh, it, you know, that's I, I could handle that. But if they were going to have 20, like the Bajorans and things, mm. it had to be sound something simple like noses. Uh, because we, we did have certain budgets we had to go in, and it also meant I would need to hire so many makeup artists to be able to apply this. So I couldn't have 20 people with big, giant, full heads that needed to be painted. And for sketching, did you have to run your sketches by, you know, the producers? How did that, you know, I wanted, I, this is what I want the Ferengi to look like. Yeah, I only had to uh, take sketches up on Enterprise. I didn't on um, Next Generation, Deep Space, or Voyager. I just literally would get the script, figure out what I wanted to do, and get a cast of the actor's face and go to town do a clay, I would take the clay sculpture up and get it approved. But when we hit Enterprise, um, it was new and they had a little bit more involvement in it and they wanted to know what was going to, maybe what I had in mind. So I would wind up doing like 10 sketches and drop them off on the producer's desk and tell them to, he had taken a red pencil, or yeah, a red pencil and put a little check on it, you know, and send it back to me. And, uh, but which was fine because a lot of times, he only selected one out of the ten, so I still had nine that I thought were all good, so I could take and throw a few of those in next time I sent you know, and it must have, drawing that. <laughs> and it must have been slightly easier for you, especially on Next Gen. You were there so long as a team. Yes. The actors, the writers, the producers, the cast. So that must have been a little slightly easier. We just kind of all got in sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I actually, I'm friends with Mike Akuta. Mm-hmm. the special effects guy from Next Generation. What's the process working with the special effects guy? Because you make a mask and now he has to worry about his part. Like you said, your son has to do the LEDs. The cinematographer has to shoot that. How do you three collaborate usually in that kind of setting? Um, we, like, I didn't have a lot to do with Michael. 
uh, Dan Curry I did work with. Uh, Bob Blackman I actually worked with more the costume designer more than anybody. But it was like in, in dealing with Bob and myself, we would basically tell the producer what we had in mind, and he'd say, go for it. And then Bob would tell me, uh, we had one show where Mary Crosby um, had to be a Cardassian female. And Bob told me, he says, I'm going to put a big scoop neck blouse on her, which meant the Cardassian makeups only went down to here in the, in the ah. costumes that the males were wearing. But since he was doing that to Mary, it meant making a scaly chest to go with her. So I would always check with Bob, and he would check with me, just to make sure when anybody got to the set that uh, there was going to be skin showing. Ah. So then looking back, what's your favorite alien from Star Trek? My favorite one is a Data's, Data's daughter, which was a little uh-huh. gold figure that looked like Oscar. Um, Leonard Crowfoot, the, the actually ballet dancer slash actor that performed in that. And Leonard's probably one of the few people that could really do that because of the control he had on his body. And Leonard wore a total slip-over face that had no ears, no nostrils, and the mouth was down here. And he wore gold contact lenses. Then we also, we wanted to take him, so he didn't have such a human chest, he had a rubber chest on, and we made a diaper that covered from over his belly button to mid-thigh. And he had to wear that. Uh, so he couldn't go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. yeah That's not so was, fun. He was locked into this. And then it took two hours to clean him up at night. <laughs> and I know the first night we went to clean him up, we thought it would be simple. And had trouble really getting everything off of him. Because I literally coated his entire body. You've heard those stories about the Wizard of Oz. Only this was glue. His whole body was, was covered in its, its uh, acrylic paint and glue. And so I, it's funny because I went home and I mentioned it to uh, Marion. My wife Marion's over here in the corner, my, my steady post that keeps me going. Um, and I told her about it. She says, well, why don't you try the loofah sponge? Well, where do I have one? I have one in the bathroom. She said, you're not going to get this back. I don't think you're going to want it. So we literally would take them into the shower and scrub him down with a loofah sponge. And Mary never got her loofah sponge back. She didn't want it back after that. And this is your favorite. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite character. Because Leonard did such a great job uh, to the point where he could stand on. There's one scene where he's standing on one leg and they unscrew his other leg and pull it away. And... Michael had built all these blinking lights to go into the rubber leg, and it starts blinking and everything. Leonard was able to stand there perfectly still. He was so strong to be able to do that. Um, so did you ever want to put a hairpiece on Patrick Stewart? <laughs> Patrick has a mind that's constantly going, so he might even come up with that idea. The only thing with Patrick's head, if you notice it, it comes to a point uh, right here on top. And... There was one of the movies, which usually if I'm a Trekkie convention, I can say, which one is this? And a thousand people throw the answer at me. Um, but Patrick was doing it. We, we finished it. And this was where he was fighting outside on some spaceship. Finished the movie. Patrick was doing a play in New York, let his hair all grow out, and they needed to shoot the ending again. So, and he couldn't shave his head. 
So there was no way. Normal bald caps that you buy are made to fit around round heads. <laughs> so Marion and myself, makeup artist by the name of Richard Snell, uh, who has passed away, we flew to New York and made an entire head cast of Patrick so we could make a special bald cap just for Patrick. And then you saw how short his hair was. Got a flocking gun and <laughs> cut, cut hair up in little, about a quarter inch long, filled it in the flocking gun. And when you're, when you're getting your head flocked, you've got to sit on the, you've got to ground yourself, otherwise you get shocked. And then as you, you start, you do the little glue around where the hair was and uh, flocked his head. And it's, uh, you know, so he was a real trooper on the show. Always. In fact, Patrick loved makeup. There's, huh. uh, there's an episode called Inner Light when he becomes old. Oh, I just and, watched that, uh, actually. <laughs> he, he loves it. I mean, and, and when he goes into the holodeck, into Shakespearean periods and things like that, he, in fact, he, he actually took longer to do his makeup than normal because he'd sit there and he'd look in the mirror and he'd go, okay, what about if we do a little, little bit here, a little, you know, <laughs> little few spots there or something? So, I mean, he was really, he's a real, I wouldn't say consummate theatrical Shakespearean actor that was into makeup. You didn't ever ask Jonathan Frakes, can we shave off the beard? <laughs> no, in fact, for one episode, I needed at least a cast of his forehead and his upper part of his face. He had his beard and he couldn't shave it off. So I actually have a cast of his face with his beard in it. I had to coat it with Vaseline so the plaster wouldn't stick. Uh, let's go back a little to your origins. Uh, I mentioned in the opening the, your, your family dates back to the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Working with makeup. Here are some of the credits from uh, the Westmore family. Sunset Boulevard, Gone with the Wind, Spartacus, Tech Commandments, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. And one of my personal favorites, Planet of the Apes. One of the, I thought the greatest makeups I've ever seen. Uh, and we didn't even touch on endless credits. Did you always know you want to continue your family's legacy? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I came to Santa Barbara to major in education and become an art teacher. I survived one year, and uh, I had to take a class in art history because I needed a two-unit class to fill me out for the semester, and I loved it so much. In fact, I think I got a D. They only gave you three grades for, the, for, for your final. There was two midterms and a final, and I got a D on my first test, and I thought, oh, my God. And so... I studied so hard, I got an A in the class. He gave me an A because I got A's on the next two. And I changed my major to art history. And uh, I loved it because it, it really went into makeup for me because I was interested in art history for the art forms, for the sculpting and the statues and the paintings and everything, of which I did here studying with the, the art teachers in, uh, in sculpting and painting. So without that, you don't think you ever would you have been a makeup artist? Would you have gone a different path if you didn't have that opportunity here? uh, I would have probably gone into, I think I was interested um, in archaeology and and museum work. And that's probably the direction I would have gone in. And then what was your uh, first job coming out of school in the industry? First job was working on a movie called Flower Drum Song. It was a musical. (laughs) Yeah, it was a musical. And it was interesting because the director... Finished the movie six weeks ahead of time, and the studio bought him a new Mercedes. <laughs> now, I was there helping. They didn't buy me anything. 
but uh, no, it was, it made, oh, and they had the, there was a double, big giant double set, uh, Universal, of which was Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And the painters, the sign painters, painted all these signs and they gave them to the set people to hang them. And they hung signs all over the place there. And all of a sudden, the uh, Asian people that could speak Chinese came in and said, why do you have a shoe store sign over the fish shop? <laughs> and so they had to go around and literally change all the signs in the entire street. Um, so curious, other than your family, of course, uh, who was like your mentor? My mentor, uh, I actually had two. Uh, Bud Westmore hired me, my uncle. And in fact, his grandson's here tonight, Alex. And um, Alex is a graduate of Chapman. Um, good school. Very good, yeah. Um, and John Chambers, uh, I would say, is my main mentor where I learned laboratory work. I learned my beauty work from Bud, but I learned my laboratory work from John. Now, if the name isn't familiar, does his name ring a bell with anybody out of curiosity? Okay. <laughs> John Chambers uh, was a- actually noted for changing the CIA's disguise department. Uh, over to uh, making very realistic disguises for the agents around the world because he developed silicone that the appliances were made out of then. But John Chambers won an Oscar for the original Planet of the Apes, and he was my mentor. And if you ever saw the movie Argo, John Goodman played John Chambers, Um, which is, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, ben Affleck doesn't because the real agent that did that was about five foot four and he was Latino. So, uh, <laughs> but John was did John uh, Goodman nail John Chambers. Yeah, John that? was a very big man like that, and I literally sat at his elbow for three years writing every word down. I still have big thick black work. Every word he gave me, I wrote down. In fact, all the Klingon teeth, all the Ferengi teeth. John was a dental technician too, and he uh-huh. taught me how to make teeth. A little quick little snap on teeth. And so uh, it's just I could make it faster than telling somebody else what I wanted or how to do it. So I disappear in the lab for a couple hours and crank out teeth. But uh, John was literally my, I would say my mentor. Um, so we're going to talk a little about uh, a very unknown director named Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and De Niro, let's talk a little Raging Bull. What was the process working in Raging Bull with those two? The Raging Bull was really, I, I, I did New York, New York with him first before that. But on Raging Bull, it was like, I think between De Niro and Marty, they looked at so many fight films. And, and Marty is the type of person that would look at so much material, suck it all into his brain, and then it starts to create coming out of that. Uh, there's so many interesting things on Raging Bull. Like he, he made the ring three times longer than a normal ring to be able to shoot down to get an optical of, of seeing so much depth in the shot. Um, De Niro trained so hard that they actually, uh, trainers there said that he probably could have gone into amateur fights and won. He was so good at it because we would break for lunch and he would go work out. He wouldn't eat. He would go to the gym and start working out. Uh, making him up in the morning, I would take the makeup chair and literally crank it out flat like an operating table. That way I could literally work right over him. I'd get his nose on, get his eyelids on, get them all made up. Then I'd wake him up and uh, 
he'd go to, he'd go to work. And it must have challenging because, you know, the story is he put on a lot of weight because, you know, Jake LaMotta. 52 pounds. 52 pounds. So you might have had it been, you know, with the production stop and then you had to do a different kind of makeup when he was heavier? Or? Yes. Yeah, there was, there was an interim stage. And it was on that interim stage that my daughter Mackenzie got her SAG card at like two years old, three years old, playing his daughter in Raging Bull. When he would, we did the makeup test at my house. And I, had, I went out and bought a black and white camera. And it, it's, we went on forever. I think I did uh, 21 different noses and about 16 different sets of eyelids. And it's like the only thing that stopped us was we started filming. And they had to make a decision. Otherwise, it's very difficult for him to make decisions. Um, that uh, he would play with Mackenzie when he was, came to the house. And Marion said, oh, Bobby's got something in mind. <laughs> and uh, it was, then he, he said, he asked her, you know, would you let Mackenzie play my daughter in the movie? And his son was going to play this little boy in, in an interim scene there in Palms, California. And then when he went to the Barbizon when he was at the last stage, uh, again, that was a bigger nose, broader nose, little dip down, little heavier eyelids up here. But by that time, he had gained 52 pounds. Oh, uh, it was done very easily with a dozen glazed donuts in the morning, uh, <laughs> which is funny because he would come in, he'd open the box up and say, you want a donut? And I'd go, oh, no, no, I don't want a donut. And then he'd eat all of them. You know? And then there was a little restaurant, Italian restaurant called Carmine's on little Santa Monica Boulevard down there. And he had literally had a table. In the back, nobody could sit at. When he, he would go over there every night, and they would fill him full of pasta. And so he literally grew from that mid, middle term. Well, and, and we were, had a, a rubber stomach. We were making a rubber stomach just in case. He got bigger than the rubber stomach by the, by the time we filmed that last scene. Uh, also, obviously, boxing movies at Rocky. How was it working with Stallone at that time, a completely unknown, and you also work in subsequent film with them. How would that relationship work over time? I, I was a Sly for eight years. And we're still friends. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it was, a, again, a working relationship. Uh, several times he would call me, though, and say, come over to the house, I need to talk to you. And it could be 7 o'clock at night. So tell Marion, you know, keep my dinner warm. I'll be back. <laughs> You know, and have to go because he really wanted to talk about things. Uh, we sat on a mattress in a little apartment in Hollywood to watch Super 8 boxing films uh, <laughs> for research on Rocky. Um, he had a punching bag hanging from the chandelier and then not a lot of furniture except this mattress on the floor where we could make that room as dark as possible with a little screen and a camera to watch those things. And then he took me to a fight. Uh, my one and only fight, and we got seats close enough I get blood on me. I said, that's it. No, I don't need any more of these things. I can, you know, I can watch these. Uh, so I did my research and had lots of pictures to go with to be able to create, create the pieces for Rocky and then to uh, go on to Raging Bull and do those too. But Sly is, um, I'm in the process now of writing a book. Well, it's written. Uh, it's going to be published in uh, in March. And... I had, I was kept trying to find Stallone. He had offices here somewhere. Finally, I found a connection to it, and the uh, phone rang, and Marion's looking at me, she's going, hey, it's Sly on the phone. 
And he called me and he says, what do you want? I says, I, I want to use a couple of quotes from you and some pictures. He says, hey, pal, use whatever you want. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, if you need any more, and he gave me his home phone number. So well. I guess I'm okay. Still... <laughs> um, so you've talked a little about you know, working with actors, and you don't have to name one. But did Who you I ever, don't like? No, no. Well, oh. not you to like, but was there any actor or actress, and you know, you don't have to give a name, that maybe was difficult in the chair? How do you deal with that when they're actor and How exists? do you deal with Betty Davis? I never said it was Betty Davis. I never said it. <laughs> <laughs> two people in two in my life. Uh, one I won't name. Uh, it's in the book. Uh, the second <laughs> or the first one is Betty Davis. I mean, she, my, my uncle Purse, was her personal makeup artist for all the years she worked at Warner Brothers. That he used to make her up in the nude, not purse. Betty was in the nude, laying on the couches. And it was funny because <laughs> I would hear the stories about on a chaise lounge and purse would do her makeup and toss the brushes over his shoulder and somebody else would go around and pick the brushes up and clean everything. She was a very, I want to say, you know, they, they give people letters. Betty's an A plus for being a woman. She is in control and everything is Betty's way. Um, I, I'll tell you the story. One of them. Um, she was going on the Brian Gumbel show to be interviewed for all the wonderful work and the trophies and stuff that she was getting. So Brian was, oh, when I was doing her makeup, um, it, it was a, there was a little room that she liked to do it in, which there was no light. You had to bring your own lights. I got there and I forgot the lights. Nope. So I called Marion. She met me half, was it halfway? <laughs> <laughs> With the lights. And I, in fact, I, she had a beautiful sunroom. I said, well, Betty, let's go out and do it in your sunroom. No, I'll get the lights. Okay, you got the lights. We got the lights and hooked them all up. And uh, I got her all made up. And, you know, it's uh, with really nice shaped eyebrows like Elizabeth Taylor and nice soft rouge and everything. Uh, the apprenticeship I had, I had to learn everything. So that's why I'm involved with beauty makeup too. So Betty, when I get all finished, I say, okay, I'm ready to go. She looks in the mirror and she goes, no, these eyebrows are all wrong. And she took and rubbed them off and then took a black pencil and went like this. Bozo the Clown. Three lines intersected themselves. And I said, well, which one of those lines do you want? And she said, you figure it out. So I kind of went through and rubbed out some and then had to do the other one over here. And then she goes, I need more color. So I said, well, here's the cream rouge. Took the sponge, scrubbed it into the rouge, went, looked like Baby Jane. I did Baby Jane before Baby Jane. <laughs> and it was like, oh, my God. You know? And then it was me, the Hollywood makeup artist, had to, she was in a wheelchair too then. Wheeler into the Brian Gumble set. And I can imagine anybody that was looking at her and wondering, where the hell is she getting made up by? You know? uh, so Brian Gumble would ask her a question. He'd say, well, now, Betty, what about this wonderful award you got? And she'd go, that damn daughter of mine. Her daughter had just released that book that uh -huh. told it how, what a horrible mother she was. So any question she was asked, she went back to the book. So when it was all over with, Brian Gumble said to her, um, or he said to me, he came up to me and he said, did you understand any of the, uh, the lecture? I said, no, I, I didn't, you know. And he says, well, I'm never going to uh, interview her again. I said, I'll make a deal with you. 
you promise me you won't interview her, I'll never make her up again. <laughs> so, um, and I didn't. In fact, Marion had called me at work, and she would say, guess who called? <laughs> and I was always way out of the country, you know, because it, it, it was just, you know, it wasn't any fun. But it's, aside from that and another one, I'd say my career was, was fun. It, uh, but I can even look back on that as fun. Uh, so uh, one, the one movie I have to talk about is Mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that? How did you work on that makeup? Because Eric had to do a lot of facial acting in that movie. It it when I went in to have an interview with Peter Bogdanovich, and he showed me the pictures. He says, "This is what we want to do." Uh, the boy Rocky lived over in I think it was Azusa, and uh, he lived to be sixteen years old. Uh, and he had a scholarship. Actually, he was a straight-A student, good straight-A student, had a scholarship to Stanford. Had he survived, he was planning on going to Stanford. Um, his mother was a little way-out hippie, and they lived amongst the bikers and everything. Um, so I, I, I saw the picture. Peter actually gave me a bunch of photographs of the real boy. And when he passed away, they gave his head to the medical department at Stanford. So his skull is up at the Stanford. And they wanted to know if I wanted it. I, go, mm, I don't think so. I don't need it. It, uh, it. it wouldn't have showed me anything. I needed it with the muscles on it and to be able to really look at the structure to see what it looked like. So uh, with my picture research, so they said, what is the one thing you need? I said, I need somebody. The, yeah, measured it out. The real boy's eyes were three and a half inches apart. It was like this, the, you know, really... His eyes are out here, almost wall-eyed. I said, I need somebody that has their eyes really far apart. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, they says, oh, oh, good, yeah, wonderful. Then I get a call and they say, yeah, we've hired Eric Stoltz. Whoa, you know, <laughs> Eric's eyes are about that far apart. So <laughs> I was able to literally make this bridge through here an inch and three quarters. I couldn't make it any bigger or it was going to uh, block, block his vision. So I had to keep it to that. Um, interesting enough, the woman that wrote the script to the movie also wrote a screen, uh, a, a play, a musical. It was called Rocky the Musical. Her yeah. Bass the Musical, um, which uh, played at Pasadena Playhouse for a nice run, literally to standing ovations every single night. Marion, I, 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 I did all the tests and everything, and then I turned it over to the their in-house makeup artists who would do it on a, a nightly basis. But Marion and I would go back twice a, twice a week, and we would sit somewhere different in the house so I could see the makeup to see if she was getting a little sloppy or not getting things done. <laughs> but we sat everywhere. I remember one night we were sitting in the first row balcony there at the, the playhouse, and at the very end, the, the, the boy, he's passed away at this point, is on a motorcycle almost to the top of the proscenium here. And he was going, he was kind of like going like that. And so after it was over with, I went backstage and I said, oh, hi. He says, hey, I was waving at you. Didn't you see me? You didn't wave back. (laughs) (laughs) But a a great, great talent came in to do the music. And I was really surprised. It didn't, they were hoping, you know, to go on with it further. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, of course, now you have a major career. You've also a reality TV star, along with your daughter on Face Off. Uh, how... Uh, <laughs> How is our being part of the show and actually kind of mentoring and seeing the young makeup yeah. artists of the world? Yeah, um, being with Mackenzie is a real treat. That that is. That's um, we worked those a couple of times in the very beginning where you know we would do the walkthroughs together and we could joke and we could, had a lot of fun. But uh, it finally got to the, at the end there where I was doing the walkthroughs uh, by myself and. To me, it's a real, real joy to do because I, I taught uh, at Valley College for ten years, and you know, just even even when I come to Santa Barbara and, and talk to a class or something, I enjoy teaching, and that gave me the opportunity. You figure we've gone thirteen seasons, and I've had um, approximately twelve to fourteen contestants each season to be able to deal with and talk to them about their sculptures. Now, I'm on camera for what you see me is about maybe three minutes, three, four minutes, but I'm with each one of them for 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, so when there's 12 of them or 14 of them, I'm there for a couple hours uh, working with them. And I talk to them about their sculpture. Are they doing the challenge? Uh, that's the main thing I'll get on them is all of a sudden they say they're supposed to be making a vampire and somebody makes Frankenstein. I'll tell them, I says, you know, this is you're, it's like a recipe. You're going to cook hamburgers and you do a cheese sandwich. It's not going to work. Um, so I, I talk to them like that. If, I, if there's a, a, a direction they're supposed to go in, and, and I know what Mackenzie's told them to what they're supposed to be doing, and so I push them in that direction. I'm, I'm never mean to them. Um, once in a while, I have, you know, added some clay to something or put something off or kind of probe them to see how deep the sculptures were and things like that. But my whole idea is to get them going in the right direction so they don't lose. Because then we talk about application, talk about painting, the colors they're going to use, and I'll even talk to them about body movement. Of, since they've made this character like this, how do you want your, your, your subject to present themselves to the judges? So it just isn't a walk out the door, uh, which was interesting. When I did Eleanor and Franklin um, with Jane Alexander, uh, Jane, I had her made up as Eleanor Franklin and uh, as, as an older Eleanor Franklin. But come lunchtime, Jane put on a sundress, and here she is with this older face and hands, and she's walking to the commissary, you know, <laughs> uh, sprinting along. So it's... Uh, and that's, that's another one of those instances where when I had her made up, she had to work with her face to become Eleanor Roosevelt. That's amazing. All right, we have time for a very couple quick questions. Is the approach for doing makeup in black and white for a black and white movie like uh, Raging Bull different? Is it easier or harder? Uh, you can get away with more or, or is it more challenging to do if you know you're filming in black and white? The only difference I had with Raging Bull and, and color film was the blood didn't work. In the old days of black and white, they actually used chocolate syrup for blood. And so I didn't want to go directly to dark brown, so I mixed the red just for a visual effect for Scorsese and De Niro and mixed the two together. It's more of a problem for wardrobe. 
because if you put the same shade of green and gray and blue on somebody, it all looks the same. You could make a whole color wardrobe up, but it is all going to photograph the same. So it's more of a, a, for, for, uh, a challenge for people painting the sets and dressing the sets and, and costume. I have a question up top. When it comes, like, my question basically kind of surrounds whether or not, like, if you were a fan of Star Trek before you got on to Next Generation. Because uh, I know with a lot of people who have started working with things like that, they start as a fan. So when you really got to start developing, like, new Vulcans, like, especially for First Contact, you know, like, these first Vulcans to interact with the human race, how that was for you? Uh, I saw the movies, but I wasn't really you know, I would say a Trekkie fan. Um, I did a film called Masters of the Universe, which was a a fun sci-fi film to do. And then when Next Generation came around, I mean, I was familiar with Spock um, and and Shatner. I had met Bill many times uh, when he was playing policemen and things like that. Uh, Marion had taken acting lessons from Leonard before he became Spock. Um, it, it, it was, it's like I, I literally just jumped right into it. And that's why I think I have a, g- approached every single project. If I didn't want to do it, and there wasn't really one that I can say I didn't, well, I didn't want to do Raging Bull oh, because there was a lot of four-letter words in the original script, well, of which it still wound <laughs> up with a lot of four-letter words. But they cut half of them out. And it was like, well, there's no movie here, you know? Um, But I think I have approached every single project with enthusiasm and wanting to do as much as I can in it, even down to the point of Nicky the nose here. Like, I sculpted that nose and painted it and glued it on him, you know? It was like out of nowhere. Okay, we want to put a nose on it looks like it's metal. Oh, great, (laughs) you know? I'll go do that. We'll have it tomorrow. Um, so uh, I would say I be, became a Trekkie being involved in the show um, and having the opportunity to make Klingons, do Vulcans, uh, come up with new aliens. And had we continued on, we probably would have gone back. Because they, uh, well, got to do the Andorians, which were great because they were all uh, mechanized with radio control. Um, we were going to do more had uh, Enterprise survived another three years. I was wondering if you saw, how do you see yourself uh, when you're coming out of a family that has done, as Matt said, decades and decades and hundreds, if not maybe thousands of films, the old way. And you see the field changing so that there's much more visual electronic effects, Mm -hmm. and therefore less need for the hands-on physical? Or is that a mistaken idea? No, it's true. I feel feel kind of sorry that certain things have gone to opticals. It's cheaper, though. The the thing is, again, it comes down to finances. It's easier for them to control it electronically than it is to maybe have somebody make it and it doesn't work the first time and they have to make it again and make it again. Um, So there's, there's a... We've kind of worked it out now, like with the Oscars, that if things are done optically, you have to say what's an optical so you don't win the makeup award for having something you never did. 
So it, it, we've, we've worked it out now, like with the Oscars, that if things are done optically, you have to say what's an optical so you don't win the makeup award for having something you never did. So it, it, we've, we've worked them out, you know, worked them out together. Um, it, it's almost like a history. When I look back at things that my uncles did, like the hunchback of, first did hunchback, Bud did uh, Creature in Black Lagoon. It's like uh, Wally did Hunchback, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like each one of the uncles have some classic movie that they were involved with, which, you know, was rubber and uh, is wonderful. But things are progressing now. I mean, the, a lot of the silicone makeups that are being done are absolutely gorgeous. These people could go rob banks today and, <laughs> and get away with it. I mean, it's so good. It's so lifelike. Yeah. And actually, an example is Planet of the Apes. The original was mechanical, and the new one was the CGI, more the CGI. The yes, apes. Yeah. 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 But it, it's things, it takes a progression. It's like I heard somebody say, uh, oh, the first Planet of the Apes is really crude because all they could do was this. Well, that's all they could do then. And now with the latter Planet of the Apes, it's CGI. You know, nobody can open their mouth like that, like the gorillas do. And uh, so it's... You know, it's it just, it's, it's, it's history. It's moving, moving along. Yeah, we got time for one or two more. Oh, we have one right there, Connie. And right there, Connie. We'll get you three and then we'll. Hi, thank you so much. Um, what is it like for you when you go to the movies <laughs> and you're watching uh, the makeup, both beauty and technical, on the screen? Is it, do you get completely distracted um, if, if something is, is definitely wrong, you know, even down to the point of like one of the Star Trek movies, they painted the Orion girl aqua color instead of green. <laughs> that wasn't Gene Roddenberry's dream. It was, you know, and they're avocado green with black <laughs> lipstick. They aren't aqua with pink lipstick. And fun, it's funny, it jumped out on me. I was like, whoa, you know. And, I, and, I, and the funny part about it was, is they paid a lot of money for this makeup to be made in Australia. When I had gallons of it left over, uh, <laughs> sitting in Canoga Park. With all the CGI, does this mean that there are fewer and fewer, you know, of the of the expert makeup people now, or do, I mean, do you see the the profession? Not really. No, not really. It's like there's there's still little things that need to be done. That I think you know, uh, like Del Tor- uh, Guillermo, uh, he likes makeup. He was going to be a makeup artist, and he loves makeup. So he would rather have something done in makeup than a visual effect. So there's there still a lot of makeups being trained and coming into the business. You know, uh, hoping you know to get jobs here. And there's a lot of the a lot of the well a lot of the talented kids coming off of Face Off haven't stayed here in Hollywood. They've gone back to their home, Anthony, who's amazing, uh, opened up a shop in Chicago, and he's king of the hill. A lot of big shows that shoot back there in those areas. He's doing the appliance work for them. Or Laura down in Florida. Laura went on uh, Hunger Games with V uh, as soon as her contest was over. So I would say like the first three or four people that wind up on Face Off 
not necessarily stay in Hollywood, but go back to their hometowns and do very well doing commercials and movies that come to town. No, there's still, there's still a market. The, school, the schools are doing better than ever as far as uh, taking people in the makeup schools. Well, uh, two years ago, we got a chance, I got a chance to go down to Michael's house when we had this idea about the museum exhibit. And now this, you have to go to the UCSB Museum Art, uh, Design, Architecture and Design. The exhibit's open in April. You can see all these wonderful exhibits. They've worked so hard, so long, and of course with you. And you'll see a lot of the things that you saw in the movie tonight. Yeah, the, the Borg Queen. There's so many amazing masks. And, and thank you, by the way, for extending it. I mean, it's just, we're so excited that it's here on campus. Uh, I just want to thank you for, you know, showing the future makeup artists in the world what you can do if you have passion and hard work yeah. and creativity. And for me, growing up as a Trekkie, uh, I have to say, I, uh, I don't think I'd be here today if it wasn't for Star Trek. It inspired me creatively, even as a small child, and you were such a huge part of that. So thank Thank you you. so much for inspiring me and all the audience today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.